Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad, and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way, and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I chat to 1993 Women's World Surfing Champion, Pauline Metzer. I grew up surfing Bondi and Bronte beaches with Pauline, and she was recently featured in the film Girls Can't Surf, a documentary featuring a group of renegade women surfers fighting for recognition in a male-dominated sport during the 80s. After our chat, Lifeguard Singlet joins me for Beach Banner, and I answer questions from the fans in the mailbag. Now let's listen to Pauline's amazing journey. So this week in the uh, Beach Shack, we've got Pauline Metzer. And it's, I've haven't uh, seen her for a long, long time, but uh, grew up down there at Bronny Beach and, and Bondi. So welcome, Pauline. How are you? I'm great, Hopper. How are you? Yeah, all good, all good. And it's uh, amazing how it's done a full circle, hasn't it? That, um, you know, I... I Bondi filmmaker Chris Nelius has put together uh, recently and he's released Girls Can't Surf, a documentary featuring a group of, of renegade women surfers fighting for recognition in the 80s. So he did a little bit on Bondi Rescue, actually, Chris. So I've known him over the years. But now, how was that? Was that a surprise to um, feature in this movie? Um, you know, when, I, when Christopher first contacted me, I was very quick to look up you know, his credentials and see what he'd done. And I saw that he'd done an amazing film with Ross Clark Jones and Jones and Tom Carroll. And, um, yeah, I got talking to him just a few times and I really liked him. I just felt like he was a really genuine, caring, considerate guy. And then, um, you know, we talked for quite, probably about a year here and there and he finally got sponsorship to do the first part of it. And... Um, we did, I think he came to the Azores first and then once they got into making the film, they realised they didn't really want to go along that path. They wanted to do more of the 80s and 90s. Right. So then he had all of us crew and, and some of the American girls all fly over for the interview and we just had no idea it was going to be as good as it is. Like, you know, you've seen, seen a few movies here and there and stuff, but just the way he represented us and the way he told his story was so spot on. It was incredible. Yeah, he's a good guy. And I've, I've, as I said, I've worked a, a bit with him over the years. And But how was it actually seeing the girls that uh, you wouldn't have seen them for a, a long, long time? Oh, it was awesome. I hadn't seen the Smith Twins and Frida Zamba for probably 15 years. So it was just really nice to, to reconnect during the filming. But also what's happened after is – all our friendships have kind of rekindled and, and become really strong. And we all went down to Victoria for my delayed 50th birthday. And it was just absolutely amazing. Just the film that day, like it was one of the best days in everyone's life because we got to surf, you know, these machine wave pool waves and they were just incredible and all get barreled together. And uh, just, just been so, so nice what that film's done. And it's not just for women surfing, but, 
people in general, like people who have autoimmune like myself or, or gay people, they've seen the movie and they've been gotten really inspired. And I've had so many beautiful messages of people thanking me and thanking the other girls and also just thanking them for giving their children encouragement to be themselves. And um, also people who are unwell to want to strive to do better when they see someone like myself who's had an illness most of my life to reach the top and then still have another illness now and to still keep going. So it's given people that bit of extra strength to keep going. You know, that's um, something that it would inspire so many people. And as you're touching on it, it was, it was rheumatoid arthritis, I think, and you had that when, what, from the age of 14? I remember back in um, the early days. Yeah, I've had that since I was a really young child, probably 10, and suffered that almost all my career. I actually gave up in the end because it got so bad. And then um, to all of a sudden be diagnosed with this very rare autoimmune now, I was just like, oh, my God, <laughs> why was I given this? But um, I kind of feel like it happened to me to be this voice for a, a rare illness and to to bring awareness to people who have got rare, rare diseases because we don't get the same care that, people do with a common illness yeah and it's a good point to never give up i don't think as much as i've seen you grow up over the years that you never gave up and it would have been very very easy to do that and but thinking back to your early days when you were surfing i remember um you know we, we used to get down there and um you know our families all down at bronte and getting out in the foamy foam boards when we were young young kids and in the back of the uh the bogey hole there and then eventually uh venturing out in, into the uh, surf. So what was your passion back then? Was there someone that you looked up to that what made you want to get out and do the surfing? Because it was tough back then being a, a female against, you know, a, a majority of the people out there were guys. You know, I think because I grew up with three brothers, it really helped me be quite tough and, and be able to cop a bit of slack from, you know, the crew at Bondi and Bronte. But um, I, I kind of started at Bronte on half a cool light and then, you know, it was a bit too crowded and, you know, you had to be like, you know, one of the boys kind of thing to get a wave there, whereas at Bondi it was a bit spread out and I found I could get a lot more waves. So that's why I moved to surfing Bondi. And I really looked up to Cathy Anderson. She was one of the only women that was surfing at the time. And she really, really encouraged me. She encouraged me to compete. She encouraged me to surf big waves. Remember times where her and Spot Anderson were like, come on, Gromit, we're getting out there. And it was like <laughs> 12, 15-foot closeouts and we're just going out the, the point at South Bondi, way, way out the point and paddling from the back of all the waves to try and get in. And I'm just like, you guys are mad. There's like nothing surfable in <laughs> big closeouts. And I was so scared. I remember just like catching anything I could just to get in to get away from those two nutters. But um, – <laughs> Eventually, they did help me overcome my fear, and and then I got to be good friends with Victor Ford, and he helped me out by letting me work in the surf shop every now and again, and then he really worked on my style. So I really thank him for helping me, um, you know, become the, the surfer I was in the earlier days because, yeah, style is everything, and he really helped me work with that and also learning about surfboard design. So he made me get a little book and write in the book exactly from the very first day I got my first custom surfboard. 
he made made me write it all down. Oh, did he? Yeah. How was that feeling getting your first custom board? Oh, it was magic. You know, the way I got my all my boards was from collecting cans and baking cakes, and same with getting to competitions. It was the same kind of thing. We had no money, so we had to earn our own. And um, I actually remember the first fiberglass I bought was at Vic's shop before I knew him, and he had it for sale for forty dollars. And I'm like, oh, come on, you know. <laughs> I'm really keen on surfing. Could I have it for twenty dollars? <laughs> so here I am, really young, willing and dealing already. But um, yeah, to finally get my, you know, a few free boards and stuff was just absolutely amazing. And it was um, Simon Anderson that I was working with, so one of the best shapers in the world. And um, yeah, I learned a lot with him as well. It was really, really amazing. So you joined. Uh, you're in the the Bondi Board Riders at the time, and so you're working your way through that. Did you surf? We mainly had to surf against the guys in, in that? No, ITN actually had quite a lot of women, so I was surfing in the women's division, but I was a lot younger than everyone else. I can't remember. I might have gone against the boys, but I don't really remember. The only reason I remember just even surfing with the girls was because I've got a photo that I found when I was looking through all my stuff for the movie, and it's really funny because, um, you know, all the women are like, five foot six or five foot eight or whatever and here I am a little grummet I was probably four foot two and I just put my hand over the top of everyone's head and then you could still see me clearly <laughs> so I was like the, t- the ultra got grom down there but then I found there was one girl surfer called Tanya Carlo and she was surfing and then I was so happy to find someone around my age and then she was going to the same school so I found a surf buddy and it just opened up a whole new world for me. And when did you decide from there, did you decide, look, I want to go on this um, world tour of surfing or was it just something that happened? And, you know, was that, what year was that, mid-80s, late-80s? Yeah, it was probably, I think in 85, 86, Kathy Anderson had taken me to a couple of the amateur events and I did really well in it. And... That just gave me the desire to want to compete. And then I went into the Triple J Junior and won quite a few prizes. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, if you enter these events, you get clothes and skateboards and all kinds of stuff. So I was really, really keen to start competing. And then I was at Bondi and the first pro event came there. And I was like, why can't I go in this? Like, you know, and then... I remember surfing at South Bondi and they were trying to clear the area and I was the last one left in the water and they kept saying, well, that little boy get out of the contest area. <laughs> and I kept thinking, they're not talking to me because I'm a girl. <laughs> and um, I had short hair, looked like a total tomboy. And then um, finally someone actually came down to the water's edge and made me get out. And I watched the women surf and I was like, oh, I could surf as good as them. Like, yeah. I want to go in this. And then I looked on stage and looked at that you can win all this prize money and so from that moment on, I realised that's what I want to do. And then you went on to the tour and how was that? Was it eye-opening? You know, then suddenly from being down, at, you know, growing up at Bondi and next thing you know, you're travelling the world, surfing all these waves that would probably, you know, totally different to what Bondi would be. Yeah, well, I made it to the World Amateur Titles in 88 and I won the World Amateur Titles and then I turned professional the next year and I did three events in Australia did really well. I got second in Manly against Tony Sawyer. And then I decided to do the whole tour. And I had an absolute blast my first year, sort of learning all the ropes and learning how it work, all works. 
And then by the end of the year, I realised, you know, I actually turned professional to move away from the amateur events because I didn't think they were that professional, the way they ran it and stuff. And then I realised it was happening in the professional events as well. Yeah, so it was just really hard, um, you know, not being looked after like I thought we were. And, um, yeah, it was just a never-ending struggle of, like, they kept saying, all right, the surf's shitty now, but let's put the women on. And then I was like, is this always happening all the time? And they're like, yep. And so finally after, you know, being on tour for quite a number of years, we just started deciding to stick up for ourselves and, and you know, if the surf was really unrideable, which is what they would put us out in, we just started saying, no, we're not doing it. And then um, to make sure we had uniform decisions within the women, we decided to get have our own representative and so once we started doing that, it was quite a really big struggle with the guys because they kept thinking we were trying to take over and they didn't realise we were just trying to f- fight for equality. Yeah. And then through time, it got a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And, you know, I guess the, the ASP were learning that we weren't there to take over. We were there just to be surfers and, and to be recognised just like the guys were. And I couldn't believe when I retired and they announced that there was equal prize money in 2019. I really didn't think it would happen in my life. And it's absolutely incredible that it has. And I think the WSL has done amazing things for surfing. Yeah, they have. And I think you should be very proud of yourself because that's without you and and, and all the other women back then pushing and and, and striving to, to have it as equal, it probably wouldn't have got to the point it is today and in a short period of time, really, when you look back at it? Oh, definitely. I, th- I think a lot of the girls really had no idea what we've done until this movie came about, and that's why I think it's also really important to show history. And it's a pity that we, you know, maybe we could do a sequel or something because there's even the women before us that paved the way as well. You know, there literally is hundreds of stories and they only touched upon a, f- a few of them. But it just goes to show, you know, we, we did have never-ending struggles to face. And, you know, it was I guess it was just sort of a part of life then and it was a part of everyday community, not just in sport. And and now, you know, the movies come out in perfect timing and, and women in Australia are all saying, okay, enough's enough. And everyone's sticking up for themselves. So I think, you know, it's, it's really good times now for um, a big change. Yeah, I mean, and... and- I notice at Bondi now, it's uh, you know it's nearly fifty-fifty men and women that are out there surfing now. There's so many women now trying to uh, learn to surf, and which is fantastic, especially the young kids coming through. You can see it, and it's it's something that's um, you know that they're all striving and looking up to people like yourself and and what you've done in the past. Take us back a little bit now to the struggles of the tour because you weren't earning much money. You struggled to get sponsorship. You know, how tough was that? How did you get through doing the tour back in those days? So, you know, my mum was a really positive person. She used to tell me there's a positive in every negative. And so when I found out, like even when I was world champion, I found out that, you know, some of these big name companies didn't want to sponsor me because I didn't have the look that they wanted. I thought, buggy, I'll do it on my own. And so I went back to what I did when we're, when I was a child and that's just learned to survive for yourself so I did things like I would buy you know 20 or 30 pairs of Levi jeans in America and bring them to France and and triple the price and I also did that with like I've got this really 
groovy, cool bicycle that was like $200 in America and sold it for like $1,500 in France. <laughs> and the friends that I stayed with at each place kind of, they knew that I, weren't, I wasn't sponsored, so they would be the ones that had people ready to buy the stuff off me. So I kind of feel that um, those people, if it wasn't for them, they were like my sponsors. And if it wasn't for the families that I stayed with, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So, um, yeah, I mean, even things like at the contest area, I got known for going into the contest area and, and taking like, you know, Coke Classic would sponsor. And I'm like, cool, I'll just get a couple of cases of Coke for my friends. <laughs> and, you know, I'd do it in front of everyone. And they're like, what are you doing? I go, I don't have any sponsors. So I'm like helping myself to these <laughs> so I can survive on tour. And then it became kind of an ongoing joke, like, I remember Serena Brooke one time in Japan saying to me, hey, Pauline, I just found this wooden spoon on the beach. You can probably sell this and buy yourself some lunch. <laughs> so it kind of became a joke that everyone knew yeah. I'd survive on nothing. And Mate. then even stuff like staying in tents or in your board bag if you couldn't find anywhere to stay, you know, because some places were just booked out in summer and it was way too expensive. So, you know, we didn't really have a lot of choice and – um yeah, like even we also did things like there'd be five girls in a tiny little hatchback and we'd all have three or four surfboards each. So you've got like over 20 boards on the roof <laughs> and all this luggage and you're going from France to Portugal, you know, just to save money all jammed in. So we did that kind of stuff a lot. You know, today you wouldn't see barely any of the competitors staying together in any sport. But we all had to stay sometimes even up to six people in one place. Yeah, that's crazy. I can't imagine the uh, the, the pro surfers these days uh, going down to the contest and sleeping in their board bags. Uh, I think that'll uh, that'll be a shock to a lot of people when they hear what, what know, right? you guys have to do. <laughs> yeah, so back in uh, 93, you did win the world title and uh, against uh, Wendy Botha, who was probably dominating the sport at the time, how was that uh, feeling when you finally won? Because I saw that you pretty much couldn't free surf that much because of your arthritis. So, you know, can you tell us a bit about that. Yeah, a couple of months when I when I was leading into the world title, I um I had a really bad bout of arthritis and it went on for months and months. And I thought by the time I get to Hawaii, hopefully it'll be better. And it just didn't get better. I had cortisone shots and I flew to another island over there see this guy who was supposed to be the guru and he made me about 20% better, but I was still in a bad way, couldn't free surf. And then by the time the event came up, I was still bad. So I ended up getting this really big surfboard from a friend, like a seven, eight, because it was gigantic waves. Paddled out, I was really scared because I thought, you know, I'm in so much agony as it is. I'm gonna, if I get hit by one of these waves, I'm going to um, break in two. <laughs> but just the adrenaline and the will to want to win. I just didn't feel any pain when I surfed my heat. Surfed it like there was nothing wrong with me. Did enough to make it through to the finals and it was enough to beat Narita for the world title. And then, um, yeah, I started hobbling back up the beach again after the final. And then, yeah, it was just absolutely incredible. I didn't even think I'd be competing in Hawaii, let alone win the world title. Yeah, well, that's a, a crazy and amazing effort as well that you could do that and, and then still win the, the world title. And, um, you know, and I noticed too that you didn't get much for it and I think a broken trophy to it as well. 
Yeah, so there was no prize pool at the end of the year. And um, the trophy I got, I actually thought for years that it was just loose. And then, you know, only about four years ago, I decided I better tighten it up because when people want to look at it, it's dangerous. Yeah. And I realised it had been broken all that time, so the metal inside was all broken. I'm like, great. So they always gave me a broken trophy. <laughs> but on a, on a good sign that I, I you know, saw recently that they've put together a GoFundMe and that's going extremely well and, you know, because you didn't get anything for the world title. So tell us a bit about how that came about. Yeah, so there was Sophie from Rip Curl and Brooke Farris and another lady in America. They all decided that they should do a GoFundMe. So they rung me up and asked and I said, oh, that would be awesome. And they said, so, you know, what do you think you would have won with like inflation, blah, blah, blah. And and they came up with an amount really. And I said, you know, I'd be just happy with anything. Then they said, oh, what if it goes over? And I said, oh, well, if it goes over that, it'd be awesome to give it to charities. So they asked me what charities I like. And I told them that there's someone in the Philippines that has the same illness as me. But unfortunately for him, he doesn't have access to the same medicines I do. And He's still in a bad way. So I wanted to donate to him. I also love what Disabled Surfing Association does. So they were my second choice. And then the third one is a, an autoimmune charity as well. So um, I just could not believe, like, you know, within 24 hours, it basically went up to the 25,000. And then we let people know that anything over is going to these charities and people still kept giving. And... Um, you know, I think taking the money out of it, but just the love that I've been getting from everybody, the messages, has really been healing for me on an emotional level and physical and just humbling, like being unwell, you, you kind of look back on your whole life and I thought, well, I thought I did a lot and I didn't really get any recognition for it. And I can't believe six months later that all this has happened thanks to Christopher Newless making a film that everybody's realised you know, wow, you did an amazing thing and you had a disability and you had no sponsors and you didn't win anything at the end of the year. So to get all that support and also to see the platform of people, like I knew the general public were always behind me, but they didn't have a platform to give anything. And now they do, like with the GoFundMe and Instagram, people have a way to help you and also say to you, you know, what you did is great. And yeah, it's just opened up a whole new world for me. I, I had kind of no idea that Instagram can connect people so closely with each other. And I find it really um, really nice to be able to talk to the general public and also like I write back to everyone so far and thank them for the message and encourage them as well if they've got an autoimmune or, you know, any kind of disability or the kids are gay. And, um, yeah, just encourage people. I find when I encourage people, it makes me feel good. When you give, you get back, I suppose. Yeah, that's absolutely awesome what you're doing and, and helping, you know, so many people because, you know, I've been doing this this podcast for a few months now and I've had people on and, and the amount of people that then contact me from after doing the interviews and you don't realise just what you just said then, how much you will help so many people out there. It, it's something that um, is underestimated and um, you should be very proud on, in what you're doing. 
Yeah, I think it's awesome that you can, even if you help one person by sharing your story, it's important. And I think the more people hear other people's stories, the more they'll share. And the more we help each other, the world would be a much better place. And I think also I, I noticed, um, you know, they're looking at Waverley Council putting a, a statue of you up at Bondi, which I think should happen 100%. It's, uh, you know, the only world champion we've had down there at Bondi. So hopefully uh, that keeps pushing and I'll push that as well. Oh, that would be so awesome if they did a statue. You know, I think back to the first time I saw Jody and Pam in a magazine, which even back then was very rarely. And then the first time I actually met Pam in person, she gave me an autograph. And I remember still clearly to this day. And so I think, you know, if there's young kids going to the beach and they see a statue of this young girl, and I think it should be done when I was more a child, you know, or a teenager. Yep. And they see that I came from a family that had nothing and achieved to be world champion with a disability. It's something for them to strive for. And it's a saying that's in the movie, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I really believe that it, it's really important for that to happen, and especially for women because I think there's only probably 10% of statues in Australia are women and, and the 90% are men. So it is time that it's done. And, and I really do think that athletes, especially if they become a world champion, should be acknowledged for it. Oh, I definitely 100% agree. And, you know, for people that don't know that, you know, Bondi and Bronnie have produced so many uh, professional surfers, but – you're still to this day the only one that has ever won a world title. So, you know, congratulations with that. That's something that, uh, you know, and, and your story, you, you, you're going to live with that forever. Yeah, thanks, Hoppo. Just one other thing now. You know, you, you've been the water surfing for so many years, and as you know, I'm a lifeguard and we do so many rescues. Is there anything that stands out? Have you ever done a rescue at all that you can remember? Oh, my God. Living at South Bondi, I think I rescued someone every single week. <laughs> just never ending. And um, the one thing I learned is nearly all my rescues I did on the surfboard and I would just put them on and swim behind and push them in, which is quite entertaining on a tiny surfboard, as you can imagine. <laughs> but I'll never forget this one time. I um, It was really huge at Bondi. It was probably about, probably about 10 foot and I was only about 15 or 16 and I let this person have the board and then they left me out in the water and it was a really big rip and I was having so much trouble getting in. And then by the time I got in, there's my surfboard laying there and the person had gone. <laughs> just left, <laughs> left my board on the beach. Oh, I just, so, um, just yeah, got up I learned after off. that to hang on to the board even when you're trying to rescue them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've had plenty of those. You but, hit, um, hit yeah, the beach and they go. Something very important is never, never go in, in rips. Like South Bondi, normally where there's dark, Deeper water, it looks luscious for swimming in, but it's normally the place that you do not swim. Yeah, it's, it's caught out plenty of people over the years and, uh, you know, that's still happening today. It's not, uh, uh, you know, we've been teaching people to float and go with the, the flow of the water and, and 90% of the time it'll pull you across to the where the waves are breaking or or stand up on the sandbank. So we're trying to re-educate people, but, uh, you know, that's a, it's pretty tough, as you as you know, growing up down there. Yeah, well, at least now you guys patrol the southern end as well, or you try to. Back then there was none, so most of the surfers were always the ones doing the rescuing. Yeah, that's right. And I think if you you tally up all the rescues over all the years, I reckon the uh, surfers have done probably the most rescues out of anybody. Probably. 
because they if they're right there as well before anyone's arm goes up, they've already got them on their board bringing them in. Yeah, that's right. What does the ocean mean to you? Um, the ocean to me means healing, energy, just everything really. Like a couple of times I've been stuck in Europe. I was in, stuck in Germany at one time and I was actually slowly, I felt like I was dying inside. So for me, it's it's total life. Without the ocean, that's it. So we really need to take care of it. So what uh, these days, do you get in the surf much? I know you're living up the, the north coast there now. So what are you up to these days? And do you still jump into the water and, and uh, have a surf now and then? So the last two years has had, I've had this illness. I've only probably had about 20 surfs. And as of four weeks ago, I've had a really big mend. My energy levels are back and I've had about six or seven surfs. So I'm so excited to be back in the water and um, I have a very big appreciation for the ocean. And I'm actually happy nowadays just to be sitting on my board out there. I don't have to get a wave to make me happy. It's just nice to be in the ocean. Oh, mate, sounds uh, sounds great. And, and um, once again, I um, thank you for coming on and, and telling your story and Let's push to get you uh, a statue of Bondi and hopefully um, you can mentor so many people for the rest of your life. So, Paul, and it's been a pleasure having a chat today and um, we'll have to catch up soon. Awesome. I'll be in Bondi soon, so um, look out. What a pleasure it was listening to Pauline's story. Now for Beach Banner with Lifeguard Singlets. Welcome, Singlets, into the Beach Shack, mate. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, different setting here, no sunshine, but uh, <laughs> it's good to be here all the same. Mate, um, you worked with uh, me way back in the 90s. Um, they were a different era back then. Good days, good days. Um, so much has changed. Uniforms, equipment, the way we work. It, it's just uh, it's unbelievable to see how far everything's come. Yeah, it's totally different. And uh, But I remember the story with a, with a guy who used to work with us down there, Woody, and uh, you were there that day. It's a great story, and I think uh, you can give us a little bit of an insight on what happened. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the characters that used to work down at the, the beach there uh, back when they were almost beach inspectors, I think, early on. Uh, Glenn Woodbridge was one of the legends of, of Bondi, and uh, I remember this one day there was we had these four wheel ATVs. They don't have a roof or anything. They're just like the ones you see out on the farms and whatnot, and. You know, we used to go to rescues on that, you know, someone would jump on the back and we'd head off down the beach, whatever. Anyway, we um, we used to have these these oxyvivers that were in silver metal cases and, uh, you know, the, the the oxygen bottle would be in the in the case and, and, and masks and all that kind of thing. And, and so that's how the oxyvivers used to be. And we used to have the metal oxyviver on the front of the ATV and, and whatnot and it was, was all there pretty... Uh, handy ready to go so this one day we had to get one of the ATVs up onto the promenade if memory serves me correctly it was being serviced or something and Woody decided that he would actually ride the vehicle up the stairs at (laughs) middle of Bondi in front of the pavilion now if you've been to Bondi you'll know there's probably about 10 to 15 stairs that go down to the sand and there's also ramps so most of us probably would have taken the ramp but uh, no, no, Woody wanted to go up the stairs, so off he went and uh, sort of put it into put it into gear and and 
the rest of us couldn't really watch, but he sort of got up the stairs and kind of got halfway up the stairs and sort of was leaning back in a fashion, I think, to try and get the, the you know, nose of the vehicle up the stairs. And uh, all of a sudden the whole thing flipped. And I mean, flipped backwards and flipped backwards onto him. Yeah, and he's uh, probably half, he's probably nearly to the top one. He was yeah. he's past halfway. Yeah, and he's, he he just lost control yeah. of it. That's right. Yeah, and the, 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 I think it was so back heavy. The the weight was all in the back of the vehicle that it, it just flipped right over onto its mm. and onto Glenn. You know, and uh, it, it was actually quite serious because the the as I just explained earlier, the the metal oxyviva cases have these really sharp edges and whatnot, and the the case of the oxyviva went straight into his face and um, missed his eye by, by millimetres. So, you know, it was a really sort of serious scenario. It was kind of, it was one of those things you don't know whether to laugh or, or you know. Sort of, yeah. Well, that's a funny thing is when uh, something happens to a member of the public, we always, you know, yeah. run around and you treat them seriously. That's right. Something happens to one of us. Yeah. It ends up people laughing before they try and treat you. Absolutely. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, it's like when Jethro did his shoulder on the jet ski. It's kind of like you don't take it seriously, but it's you should. Yeah. You know? Well, I remember, I think there's the, the older guys down there, Al and Laurie, that were um, actually... When it cut his face, mm. they were actually with the old school, obviously the, the phones weren't around those days, yeah. but they had the camera. They pulled the camera out and were taking photos of his cut in his eye before they even tried to treat him. Yeah, yeah. That's because, you know, the the, the, the cut was so significant. And so and I, I'm pretty sure he's still got the scar to this day under uh, his handsome, um, fortunately, he's a handsome rooster. So it didn't uh, <laughs> didn't yeah, detract to it from him too much. But yeah, he um, the boys were taking photos and whatnot before they actually treated him. So it was one of those things you don't know whether to, you know, which, which sort of hat to put on, like mate hat or lifeguard hat. Yeah, mate, that were the days in the 90s where, um, I mean, you can't, obviously these days you can't get away with doing <laughs> oh. that, but uh, back then, different era, different times and uh, made it uh, great memories to, to look back at. So, Oh, yeah, I think we're, we're sort of fortunate that we were um, able to be lifeguards back then and, and, you know, sort of experience what it was then and also what it is now. And, and like I said, a lot's changed, but um, those days were pretty fun. Yeah, they were fun days. Well, thanks, Singlets, for coming into the Beach Shack, mate. Uh, catch up soon. Thanks for having me, Help. Always good hearing from Singlets. Now let's move on to today's mailbag. This week's question is from Peter, and he's from Newcastle. How many years have you been working as a lifeguard? Well, Peter, it's uh, been a long, long time. I started back in 1991, and this year in September, it will be 30 years. So it's been a long time uh, being a professional lifeguard, a lot of time watching the ocean, and many, many rescues that uh, I can't remember the total that what it would be right now. So thanks, Peter, for your question. And anyone out there, send your questions through to the mailbag so that I can answer them. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.